welcome to All Things Erie from Erie, PA. This is episode four. Sorry that uh, it's taken a little bit of time. I've been out for flu. Um, the uh, it hit me like a uh, ton of bricks, and um, I I actually was in bed for several several days, and um, there was no doing anything. Um, just a reminder, uh, if this is your first time listening, um, please go to our web pages uh, on podbean.com. There are a couple other stories on there, obviously three more episodes, uh, and uh, there's a couple minisodes. So please tell us what you think, and if uh, you would like to visit our web page or our Facebook page. There's facebook.me forward slash at all things eerie. That's eerie with three E's. Or if you'd like to message us on the Facebook page, it's m.me forward slash all things eerie. And again, that's eerie with three E's. This week, again, sorry, Jackie's not here. Um, with me having the flu, I would prefer her not to be here. We are going to do the uh, Debbie Gamma murder, and uh, so we're going to jump right in. My name's Kathy, and I realized I did not introduce myself in the beginning, so I apologize for that, and uh, <coughs> I apologize for my voice. I still have a cough. And um, if it's a little scratchy or um, goes in and out, I do apologize. We do have two stories today. Since it is Thanksgiving, the month of November, um, we will have uh, a story about Thanksgiving, the real story of Thanksgiving and why, why it's there, what the history is of it, and um, what happened at Plymouth. So the story of uh, Debbie Gamma, we're gonna, we're gonna start off with that. Um, Debbie had left her home on um, West 10th Street on the morning of uh, August 7th, 1975. And she was supposed to head to the beach, but her body was found August 12th off Route 98, 12 miles north of Meadville, and Meadville is south of Erie. Um, I know there's a lot of people that are not familiar with that area. Um, anybody who is not from P Pennsylvania, um, obviously we call PA. Um, when she was found, um, her hands and feet were bound by copper wire and the wire was also encircled and was embedded in her neck. The, the creek that she was found in was called uh, Cusawago Creek, um, and it was in northern Crawford County. Crawford County is uh, south of Erie County. Um, the uh, coroner had ruled her death as acute asphyxiation, uh, meaning that she had died from the uh, copper wire being wrapped around her neck. Um, what I am going to talk to you about uh, is the perspective from the mother's standpoint. Um, Debbie was born on January 9th, 1959, and she was the daughter of Betty Gamma Fer Ferguson and Richard J. Gamma. So Betty, her mother, had has been remarried at this point. Um, so back in that summer of 1975, Debbie was 16 years old. In the summer of 75, I was like one. And the family lived in the city of Erie, PA. That summer, the Ferguson family was trying to sell their home and uh, Debbie and her mother had had an argument about Debbie doing the laundry, which is not an unusual argument. Trust me. And that's between boys and girls and parents, 
not an unusual argument. And I say that because of some of the uh, source, sources that I used has Debbie down as a troubled youth. Um, but this is a very sore subject for Betty because the last thing that anybody who has spoken to someone who has passed of a loved one, that their words are in anger. That's not what they want. They, and I myself know that personally. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's something that you do dwell on no matter what happens. Um, but uh, Debbie had wanted to go shopping. Betty wanted her to do the laundry and it was a firm no, you're going to do the laundry, and then you can do the shopping. And so Debbie did the laundry, and then she slammed on out of the house. And uh, so, and that was on August 7th. Um, the evening of August 7th, morning of August, or the evening of August 6th, morning of August 7th. That evening, Betty and her husband, Norm Ferguson, and Betty's youngest daughter had gone to the drive-in. When they got home, Debbie was in bed. It was around midnight, and that was the last time that Betty saw Debbie. The next morning was Friday, which was a busy day. Because the Fergusons were putting their home up for sale, and the realtor was coming over to look at the house to give them an estimate, the house had to be in order, so all hands had to be on deck. Anybody that's gone through housing sale, knows this fur, you know, everything has to be put in its place. Betty wanted to make sure Debbie had cleaned her room. She saw that she hadn't. She was furious, but she didn't have time to, you know, do anything else about it. So Betty had cleaned her room. Since Betty was busy with the realtor, she thought Debbie was at the beach with some friends. Until Betty's friend called looking for her, but shook it off thinking that she was with another friend because, you know, young kids have more friends than what we sometimes think. She would find out the entire family, uh, she would find out later, uh, the entire family had planned on going to Conneaut Lake, which Conneaut Lake is uh, going towards Ohio. Betty thought she heard Debbie coming in, but when she checked Saturday morning, Debbie still wasn't home. Betty is still upset, but thought Debbie was still mad at her and trying to get back at her. The family had canceled their plans because they were waiting to see if Debbie was going to come home. And by Sunday morning, the family really is starting to worry. Debbie had never been away this long. The family and friends started to look for Debbie. Even at one point, the stepfather barged into someone's home demanding to know where Debbie was. And that that's a lot because, you know, that means this person has done something in the past to, to spark suspicion on their part. Because for the stepfather to barge into his house, or their house, I don't know who it was, it was never mentioned who it was, in any source that for him to do that you know I mean he could have been arrested and uh, but finally Betty and Norm called the Erie police to report Debbie missing mm -hmm. by Monday they contacted everyone they could think of including the boyfriend um, me personally and that would have been the first person I would have thought of mm -hmm. on Tuesday they received a phone call you better not read the newspaper. They found a body at 9 o'clock Monday night in a creek. Betty and Norm shook that off, and Betty called Meadville where the body was at just, just to ask, what was she wearing? They told her jean shorts, so she didn't think it was Debbie because Debbie wasn't wearing jean shorts. Now, one of Debbie's friends also called down there and asked, did, did this person have any cavities? And when they said no, it, it didn't even register with them because Debbie herself did not have cavities. So, 
And that as a parent, you don't want that in your mind. You, you want with every fiber of your being that not to be your child. Nope, nope, that can't be not, it's, it's not my child. They said that, she, that that body was wearing jean shorts. It's not my child. Regardless if that, that body has no cavities, it's not Debbie. By Thursday, the police had asked Norm if he could identify the clothes. Uh, the rest of the family was there at the house to support for support. Even Debbie's father was there. So regardless that he was there, they asked Norm to come down and identify the clothing because she was not living with the father. She was living with the stepfather. Norm left in his van, but, and he was gone for a while. However, when he returned, he returned with the police. They drove him back to the house. And when they drove him back, <clears throat> they drove him back to inform Betty that, her, that the girl in Meadville was indeed Debbie. But what the Fergusons did not know about their daughter was that this possibly could have been prevented. Because the person responsible for her murder or should I say one of, is Raymond Payne. Now Payne was 39 years old at the time and worked for Erie City Schools as an English teacher. However, what they didn't know was that he was a predator, predator and a pedophile who groomed his female students for sexual favors. Nearly every day during the school, school's lunch hour, Payne would place a sheet of paper over the window of his classroom door and draw the blind over the classroom windows and molest one of the students. Now this is according to the sources that, that, I, that I read through. And since Payne was considered a progressive teacher at the time, young and the next generation, and where most of the other teachers were getting ready to retire, the district was not interested in their complaints and that parents were unaware of this. Now this is according to one source, and this is where I have trouble with it, of how they described Debbie at school. <sighs> Debbie was a troubled young girl who had problems at home. All others agreed that Payne was one of her favorite teachers, <clears throat> but she was considered popular and loved the attention. That and um, and then it goes on to say that uh, Debbie and Payne appeared to be close and that Debbie was one of the girls who, who would visit Payne during the lunch hour. And then something happened at the end of uh, the 1975 school year. They seemed to have had a falling out. Now here's my question was, was it because she was aging out? Because remember, Debbie's birthday was in the beginning of the year, January. Now, this is now August. So, August, September, October, November, December, January. In six more months, she was going to be turning 17. So, she had been his student for what, one and a half years? So 15, 16, is that where his cutoff line is? No one knows. <clears throat> um, Debbie seemed distraught about it, but wouldn't talk to anybody. But this didn't come out until much later. And as for pain, he wasn't arrested until September 23rd, 1976. And that came about because Betty wasn't satisfied with the police um, and how they were doing their investigation. She felt it wasn't going fast enough. She felt that they were not doing a good enough job. And how people how they did their investigations then compared to now is completely, I mean, it is light years different. Um, she ended up hiring a detective 
And that's how they found out about Payne. Nobody had a clue about him. He, I mean, he was so under the radar that, I mean, he could have kept gliding into the 80s and nobody would have had a clue. Um, there was, she was uh, upset about how they did not test the evidence or the lack of evidence. Um, it was, it was very, she was very upset about it and she made it very well known about it. Um, but the police can only go so far in a, into an investigation with what they have. And they can only do so much with what they have. Now, with Payne's arrest, his original charge was in Crawford County because that's where Debbie's body was found. However, in his statement on October 8, 1976, Payne categorized Debbie's death as an accident and that it occurred in Erie County. And a murder charge was filed on December 8, 1976. Now, this is what he says, and I'm going to give a trigger warning because, because remember, she's, she's a minor. Payne had met Debbie she had been standing on the corner of 10th and Raspberry Streets and she took and he took her for a ride he said he had been smoking marijuana and then took two downs which is metprobomate I totally butchered that but um, he was smoking the marijuana to get high um, and then the downs to even himself out. Um, I don't know about you, but I thought marijuana just totally made you relax. I don't know. Um, I thought that would just totally relax you even more. So he was doing that prior to meeting the victim, uh, who was Debbie. <clears throat> Payne said that they continued to smoke marijuana so he's saying now at this point that Debbie is doing this willingly that she also is smoking marijuana and taking these downs so so at this point they start to head for Everett C Hall Community Park which is a secluded wooded area in Waterford Township which if you head straight up Peach Street which is when I say head up I mean, head south, away from the lake, down 99, um, which turns into, um, we'll head towards Waterford. Um, after they got there, Debbie allowed him to tie her hands because he had asked her, hey, do you mind if I take some bondage pictures of you? And because she was so high, she was like, sure. Um, I don't get that vibe from her. If she had, even if she was high, that she would have allowed that. Um, once they got there, Debbie allowed him to tie her hands and ankles together with some clothesline. Now, Keep this in mind. He's saying clothesline, which is a nylon that is wound very tightly together, and it's a round, circular line. Um, that in itself is a completely different material, and he is saying, now I, I want everybody to picture this when I read this. He, she allowed him to tie her hands and ankles together. Okay. So, it ha but this has to be separately because of this next part. Because then he takes one end of the rope. Because, now this is clothesline that he purchased at Walmart. He ties one end to a tree. He finds two trees that are close enough together. Then he pulls that rope 
wraps that around her neck several times and then takes the other end and then ties that to a tree because she's because he had her he has her on her knees at this point okay she's down on her knees he took a line tied it to a tree wrapped it around her neck took the other end and tied that to that tree I want you to picture that so she has to stay perfectly still and he's saying she's high as shit on marijuana and downs alright because if she has any movement whatsoever backwards forwards even sitting down those ropes are going to pull that tight and it's going to cut off her air circulation I want I want everybody to picture this because it's not going to be him pulling the rope tight it's the just her weight in general and then he thinks to him and then he remembers to himself wait a minute I forgot my camera okay so he goes back to his truck even though Debbie is sitting there on her knees high as hell and trussed up by that rope and he knows if she moves in any direction it's going to cut off her air circulation but that's okay I'm going to go back to my truck and I'm going to go get my camera but not only does he return to his truck to get some to get his camera he goes back and he smokes some more marijuana and he has to load his camera and then while he's doing that he remembers ah shit I got her back air all tied up I better get back air and then once he gets back air he looks at her and he said and he realizes I done fucked up she killed herself what the hell am I gonna do so he panic he says he panics he cuts her bonds placed her in his truck and drove her back to his farm he lives on a farm by himself and he attached cement blocks to her body and placed her in a pond located at at the property two days later because you know you want to touch a dead body that's been in the water for at least two days the body resurfaced okay because obviously he's stupid he then transported the body to where it was found on August 12th. <clears throat> if any of that makes sense to you, I would love for you to message me and let me know where I'm wrong in knowing that he's an idiot because in and amongst all of this supposedly he also had someone helping him there was another student with them from a different school strong Vincent supposedly a quote-unquote associate of his John Lascaris. I'm going to butcher that name too. But if Debbie knew him or not, don't know. Um, but supposedly he was in the car also when 
Payne picked up Debbie. And now this is an important part of this story because it, as it goes on. <clears throat> and Mr. Lascaris has his own issues later on in life, especially with women. Now, Mr. Payne says he used clothesline, but Debbie was found with copper wire. So there's a huge discrepancy of what he used versus with what he found. But wait, Payne couldn't help himself once he was in jail because he pled guilty. Okay, all right. So he's in jail. He couldn't help himself but to brag because he's a narcissist. Now, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but pricks like him love to brag. He starts bragging to his, his cellmate about what happened, described in detail that he's the one who drugged Debbie. Not to her knowledge, she's not the one that took the pills willingly. He dropped it into her drink. She was drinking beer, but unknowingly to her, he was dropping those downs into her beer. And anybody who knows that when you take that stuff, that if you mix that stuff, it is like 10 times more potent that he bound both her hands and feet, but not with the clothesline, um, but with the copper wire. Um, now, this guy, if you think about how he did this, he did it with the copper wire and he did it with the intent to watch her suffocate. He stood there and watched her suffocate. He watched her slowly just not be able to breathe. And on top of this, not only being suffocated, but possibly also being sexually assaulted. And I say this because there's new evidence because of how he was convicted. They found semen at, at the scene. They assumed it was his because there was no DNA back in that time frame. They assumed it was his and that's how he was charged. He got first degree on premeditation. They said he killed her because of the sexual assault and um, <clears throat> the uh the the panel that the, that he went in before and they said all of this adds up to why you killed her it wasn't third degree you know without malice it was first degree with premeditation in mind and um Payne actually argued no it was third degree blah 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 blah, blah. and he the new evidence that came up was that the DNA does not match pain. So since that has come about, he now has a new hearing coming up to determine his degree of guilt. And whether or not the DNA will match Mr. Um, Lascaris or not, is to be determined um, but um, he could actually get out because first degree comes with a mandatory life sentence third degree comes with a, a sentence of 40 years he has spent 44 years behind bars so it will be interesting to see what happens with this case 
the fact remains is that Debbie isn't coming back. Now, there are conspiracy theories associated with this, like Payne is saying that he was set up, um, that the police were involved in setting up and planting evidence that they had Lacerus uh, plant the wire that was used on Debbie. Um, however, Lacerus, Lacerus himself has had his own issues past this. And one of his MOs was binding women up with their hands and their feet and wrapping it and 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 how he and how he has how he has actually committed crimes. So there's a lot to go with this. Um, and do I think that he did this by himself? No. Do I think he is guilty still? Absolutely. Do I think he's a pedophile? Oh, yes. Um, there's just so much here that went wrong and that it was just a perfect storm of things that just came together and that it just blew up. Um, but the thing that matters is that Debbie, how she died, she died horribly and she didn't deserve it. Nobody did to die like that. Um, when he was bragging in his jail cell to his cellmate, it was, he killed her because she was crying. He was, she was begging him to stop. You know, it's like, well, I'm sorry if you're terrorizing me and, and, and doing these things to me and I'm crying and begging you to stop. That's human nature. Um, if she, it's not like she she was beating the shit out of him and he was defending himself no he was attacking her and he was doing all these horrible things to her so um but that is the um murder of debbie gamma um she um was a very interesting young lady and her story um, was brought up again on um, some um, TV shows and um, how they brought how they how they did the intros and things like that I was not wasn't too happy with how they did it. It made it sound like Debbie herself was involved in into the darker side of this stuff, not pain himself. So, um, but but I'll be putting all that information on the uh, on the Facebook page. So, but now on to Thanksgiving, something um, that everybody kind of looks forward to and dreads at the same time so but we're going to talk about the real thanksgiving so let's jump on in uh, when you think about thanksgiving you think about turkey stuffing potatoes gravy cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie spending time at grandma's house watching the parade on tv if you're lucky watching football like most houses like most houses and just waiting, sit down all together and have this meal that your grandma has probably spent days preparing. Or your mom, or your dad, or whoever. It doesn't matter, but they've spent time preparing it. But what did you learn about Thanksgiving in school? I, like many, especially in elementary, learned pilgrims came across the Atlantic on the Mayflower to North America in 1620, where they celebrated a successful harvest 
were there with a three-day gathering that was attended by members of the Wampanoag tribe. And I'm being generous here. We were told the local tribe. And as small children, and this is way before we knew what was politically correct, would make pilgrim hats for the boys and girls and the feathered headpieces to represent the Native Americans. We would then go on and make our turkey handprints and put on, put on there what we were thankful for and hang them up for the week and then take them home for decorations for the holiday tables. That was pretty much it for learning about the Mayflower. In high school, we learned that the pilgrims were escaping from England to North America for religious freedom. Honestly, we were, we as high school students couldn't wrap our heads around the fact that you couldn't practice more than one religion in a country. We never had to face anything like that. What the hell did we know? We also thought our parents were dicks for making us clean up our rooms. How could we compare the concept? However, if schools were, really went behind the scenes and said what really happened at our at or with Thanksgiving, I think a lot more of us would have paid attention. For example, some, histori some historians argue that Florida may have been the first site of the first Thanksgiving in North America. In 1565, nearly 60 years before Plymouth, a Spanish fleet came ashore and planted a cross in Sandy Beach to Christian the new settlement of St. Augustine. To celebrate the arrival, the 800 Spanish settlers shared a festive meal with, with native Timkuan people. Although several locales vied to claim the first Thanksgiving. Our modern, def our modern definition of Thanksgiving revolves around eating turkey, but in past centuries it was more of an occasion to, of religious observances, of giving thanks. So it was about going to church. Basically, if you arrive somewhere safely or, you know, someone arrived to your home safely, you know, the your soldiers came back from war and you won the war, you gave thanks for that. There was, and then you had like, may, maybe you had a small celebration. It just depended. You went, you went to church and you gave thanks for that. You were thankful for that. I mean, they were heavily religious back in the day. Um, so, I mean, we, we just do not do as, as much as what some cultures do. We just don't. We have, we've gotten away from a lot of it. In my research, it was agreed that a harvest feast did take place in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1621, more than likely in mid-October. It's actually not even quite clear as to why the Native Americans were at the festival. Some say, some research says that the Massasoit chief of the Wampanoag was invited. He then invited some of his tribe, possibly to make allies with pilgrims who weren't even really pilgrims at all, but separatists. And they were not even, not in the New World for religious freedom, but to make money. They had already they already had religious freedom in Holland, but wanted to establish a religious theocracy, which is a type of government where one or more priests rule in the name of a deity, and God is recognized as a supreme ruler, and the laws of the area are based on religious law. Hence, which is why we have separation of church and state. So the pilgrims or separatists get here and they spend their first brutal winter on board the ship where they suffer from exposure, scurvy, and outbreaks of contagious disease. Only half of the Mayflower original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore where they met an Abenaki Indian who greeted them in English. And several days later, he returned with another Native American, Squanto, which a lot of us know that name, a member of the Pawtucks tribe who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold in slave slavery before escaping to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. 
Now, I want you to keep that story in mind, especially about Squanto and the Patux tribe. That's going to come in handy later on. Squanto taught the pilgrims to survive and forage alliances, one that, one that would endure for more than 50 years. In November 1621, after the pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebration feast and invited a group of, colony, of the colony's Native American allies. According to this source, <clears throat> now re remembered as America's first Thanksgiving, Although that's not what it was called at the time, it lasted three days, and the menu included fruits, fowl, and five deer that were brought by the Native Americans. It may have also included cornmeal, pumpkin, succotash, and cranberries. There wouldn't have been any sweets since there was no sugar or flour and no oven to bake it in. And they did like to drink. The pilgrims, pilgrims probably had some homebrew, which they would have drank instead of water. After the mill, Massasoit, chief of the Wampanoag, set up exclusive trade pact with newcomers and allies, with them against the French and other local tribes like the Narragansetts and the Massachusetts, and the alliances became strange. Thousands of colonists poured into the region throughout the 17th century. So, what I just read was... Uh, research that I found that was written by, um, you know, the, that I found through like history and, and um, certain um, research sites. Um, but what I also found, and I'm going to, and I'm going to read uh, to you that, you know, even before the pilgrims landed, there was, there were people that were uh, exploring that area and they were coming over from the European side and they were fishing that area. Um, and, and like what I said about Squanto, he, he had been uh, captured and taken back over to Europe to, um, to be sold as a slave. Being sold into slavery, I mean, it, none of us that, hopefully none of us, can understand that concept. Um, you, having someone tell, tell you that you do not you cannot make your own decisions because you belong to either that person or that person and you have paperwork that proves it, you know, is, is, I'm, I can't wrap my head around it. That's why when I read things about, um, the Civil War and, um, the uh, slavery trade and things like that, I have a hard time with it. Um, not, not that thinking that it didn't happen or anything like that. I know it happened, but understanding how somebody can do that to another human being, because things like that have gone on for generations, and it, what you know, that's not the first time it's happened. You know. Um, and people have done it in other cultures, in other countries. And I don't think I could do it. I, I don't think I could. And I probably would be beaten so bad that nobody would keep me. I, I, I could not because, you know, I just, I just couldn't. I, I really could not be, and, and I know somebody's probably going to say, well, if you're, if somebody beats you hard enough, you're going to do what they tell you and maybe, but I've been instilled and ingrained in, in having freedom and it's, it's, 
it's ingrained into me that someone, anybody telling me what to do with myself, I can't wrap my head around it. So, uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard for me to, um, it's just hard for me. And, and knowing that people do that to other human beings, it's just very upsetting. And the fact that it's still being done today with human trafficking, it just makes me sick. Um, you know, I mean, it, 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 and it's not just with children. I mean, it's still going on with adults. It's still going, it, I mean, it just doesn't stop, unfortunately. It, it does not stop. Um, okay, I'm sorry, um, off my soapbox. Um, but in my research, um, I didn't want to just get one side. Um, I wanted to see it, see it from another perspective. How do the Native Americans look at the uh, Thanksgiving feast? You know, because we look at it and we're like, oh, you know, these two, these two cultures came together and we were, you know, all hunky-dory and we got together and we were just peachy. But they weren't. They, they were not. We know how people made treaties and broke them. We know how people would sign a treaty and then on one day and then the next go behind them, that, that particular tribe, and break that. Or they would pit one tribe against another tribe to wipe one tribe, you know, they would go to tribe A and, and then pit them against tribe B and then get tribe A to wipe out tribe B so they could take tribe B's land. I mean, it was just unreal reading some of this stuff. I mean, you knew it went on, but just, just reading what they would do was just, History is written by the winners, but to know what all is actually done is still just hard, you know? Um, I mean, a lot of the tribes were wiped out by diseases, and I mean, a lot of times, and, a lot of times these tribes were wiped out by a disease that they never saw a white man because it would wipe out a whole tribe and for every 20 Native Americans, one would be left hardly alive. And there were so many dead Native Americans that they couldn't bury them all. So they would go to another tribe for help and they would take that disease with them and which in turn would infect them and would wipe that disease out or that disease would wipe them out, which, you know, they thought it was either the plague or, um, or uh, smallpox or even influenza that was doing this. But uh, again, I digress, um, but Going back to Thanksgiving, um, in my research it says uh, that most American Native, uh, Native Americans um, today call Thanksgiving a day of mourning. Um, before the pilgrims arrived, <clears throat> that site had been um, of a Pawtux village, if that sounds familiar to you. Uh, that had been wiped out by a plague introduced by English explorer, explorers five years earlier before the pilgrims landed. The nearest other people were the Wampanoag, 
whose land stretched from present-day Narragansett Bay to Cape Cod. After the pilgrims arrived, they spent four, four days exploring Cape Cod. They found that native people buried their dead with stores of corn beans, and the pilgrims dug up many graves, taking the food. It, and that's just reprehensible. <clears throat> to the native people who had observed these actions, it was serious des desecration and an insult to their dead. The angry Wampanoag attacked with a small group, but, their fright but were frightened off with gunfire. When the pilgrims had settled in and were working the fields, they saw groups of native people approaching, running away to get their guns. The pilgrims left their tools behind, and the native people took them. Not long after, in February of 1621, a Samsuset leader of the Wabanaki peoples walked into the village saying welcome in English. Samsuset was from Maine. Samsuset told the pilgrims about all the native nations in the area and about the Wampanoag. And their leader, Massasoit, spoke about a friend of his. I'm just going to call him Squanto because his native name I, I don't want to butcher it, butcher it because I have too much respect for him. <sighs> to Squantum, um, who also spoke English. Samsuset left promising the pilgrims he would arrange for a return of the tools. Samsuset returned with 60 native people, including Massasoit and to Squantum. And Edward Winslow, a pilgrim, went to present them with gifts to make a speech saying that King James wished to make an alliance with Massasoit, which was not true. Massasoit signed a treaty which was heavily slanted in favor of the pilgrims, which is what he would do as, as, as the king, um, which unfortunately people do stuff like that all the time. Now, this is from um, um, a Wampanoag um, person who went to um, college, and um, I do. I want to say out in Utah. I think this said um, this source, and um, they were talking about the story of Thanksgiving, and they said, "I'm from that nation. These are from my. Pe this is from my people." And this is what has been passed down, and um, and their and this is what they said the version of the meal was. <clears throat> the first they said that the pilgrims their first successful harvest and the pilgrims were celebrating by shooting guns and cannons in the air, which alerted the Wampanoag, who didn't know who they were shooting at. So Massasoit gathered up some ninety warriors and showed up at Plymouth prepared to engage when they arrived. It was explained why they were celebrating, so they decided to stay to make sure that it was true because of past landings and things that have happened with Captain John Smith and even the Vikings. The Wampanoag count of survivors from the Mayflower was 23. Now, I thought that was important because they, they say that their count was only 23, but in the Mayflower's count, it was 50. So unless they had people that just stayed out on the ship, I don't know. The Wampanoag celebrate and give thanks more than once a year in formal ceremony for different, for different season, for green corn, Thanksgiving for the arrival of certain fish species, whale, the first snow, and their new year in May it's not a foreign concept, and human beings who recognize a greater spirit than they would have to say thank you in some formal way. So, the the Wampanoag, they themselves, they have their version of what happened. They're saying, look, we weren't invited, but because the pilgrims were shooting cannons and, and gunfire in the air, we had to go check this out. In the treaty, it stated we would have the pilgrims back and they were supposed to have our back. So we gathered up our warriors. We went over to see what was going on. Now, 
because we came over, quote-unquote, uninvited, the governor felt he needed to invite us, maybe to save some face, so we stayed. But at the same point in time, on the other version was, ah, no, we invited you, man. You're good to go. You know, we got you. It's, everybody's going to have their own version of what happened. We're not going to know what happened because we weren't there. But needless to say, either way, how it worked out, the alliance that was made between the Wampanoag and the Pilgrims ended up being dissolved because people could not hold true to the treaties. Wampanoag's chief, Massasoit, his son later on became the leader and his men underneath him became uh, a uh, it, it, there, was, there ended up being a war. Massasoit's son ended up being known as King Philip. Um, and there was a terrible war that cost many, many lives on both sides. And the thing about this is that these people who later went to war some of them started out at the Thanksgiving feast. And it started with an alliance, which later, it, it did not go well. It just did not go well. No, um, the, the people who were supposed to hold to this could not keep their word. Very, I think, very sad and a very, um, wrong thing to do to somebody whose father went and um, worked very hard to help somebody because these people could have destroyed them and let them die. Very simple. They could have, you know what, screw you. Don't have to do it. We know what you guys are like. We've seen how you've acted in the past. We want nothing to do with you. You all can die. But no, they put their best foot forward and said, let's try this. But people can't keep their words. They can't hold trust. And it just went downhill from there. So that's my story for the, the real Thanksgiving, which turns out to be bloody and ugly. So, but I hope you enjoy it. Anyways, next week is Thanksgiving. Um, I hope to have uh, two new stories for you. And uh, then it starts Christmas time. Um, I promise not to do too much Christmassy stuff. Um, I want to remind everybody to please, 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 uh, if you do hear this and you do enjoy it, let your friends know and uh, pop on over to Podbean and download the uh, story and um, visit our Facebook page and please like our Facebook page. Um, message us, um, the Facebook page at All Things Eerie. Um, that is Eerie with three E's and I hope that you guys uh, enjoyed. And uh, this is Kathy signing off.